Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Fader interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. Sasami Ashworth has been reinventing her musical self since long before the release of her first song. As a child in the El Segundo neighborhood of Los Angeles, she took piano lessons and sang in the Unification Church, known to many Americans as the Moonies, where her parents belonged. In middle school, she switched to French horn and carried that awkwardly shaped instrument with her all the way to a degree from the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Later, she returned to LA, where she filled several roles at once. Music teacher, session musician, film scorer. She also entered the indie rock scene as a backing player in some of the city's buzziest bands, most notably playing keys for Cherry Glazer. After a quarter century as what she describes as an organ in larger musical, cinematic, and spiritual bodies, Ashworth says she felt it was time to start her own thing. And so Sasami, her monomeric solo act, was born. Her 2019 self-titled debut album comprises the first songs she ever wrote, but it's a more mature project than many artists' fourth and fifth records. And yet, some in the music media chose to fall back on obvious comparisons to the few established Asian-American women acts operating within the Western art pop ethos. With their words ringing in her ears, Ashworth set out to reinvent herself again. Her method of choice was new metal. Quote, try to fucking compare me now, end quote. She dared the keyboard warriors in one recent interview. Her new album, Squeeze, is as angry as promised, but it's much more than that. Yes, it's full of thrashing middle finger tracks as subversive as they are moshable, but it's also got triumphant ballads, an industrial club anthem, and at least one heartfelt breakup track. On the eve of the album's release, Sasami sat down with the faders Raphael Helfand, to discuss System of a Down, Japanese Water Spirits, and the making of Squeeze. How are you, how are you doing? Are you in LA right now or are you somewhere else? I'm in Vermont because my backing band, Barishi, they're a metal band out here in Southern Vermont. So I come out here before every tour just to rehearse with them. Where, where in Vermont? In Brattleboro. How far is that from like Burlington and... It's like maybe two hours south of Burlington. It's, it's really close to, it's much closer to like Western Mass. Well, that's fun. It's beautiful out there, huh? Yeah, it is. I mean, LA is really nice in the winter, but it's it's nice to get a break from all the sunshine. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, let's get right into it. So Squeeze, I think, is going to surprise a lot of people who haven't been paying close attention to the album cycle. With your theory background, you've obviously thought about tension and release like ad nauseum. Do you think surprise is another core tenet of good music? I think that there's just so many different types of art and so many different types of music, but this album is really tapping into kind of more of a thriller, dark comedy, horror film energy. As a composer, I'm less attached to being autobiographical and more interested in creating some sort of experience for the listener. So Skinner Rat uh, is Squeeze's opening track and one of its lead singles. 
So it's been and will be the first taste a lot of people get of this record. quite a dramatic statement to start an album with a song this sonically and thematically demented, um, especially after like the relative uh, tameness of your debut. What went through the decision to put this one front and center? I think it's kind of the, the thesis statement, and it's definitely starting with a bang. That song is kind of, I don't know, like I said, I, I wanted to create sonic experiences that the listener could use as a catalyst for a cathartic experience, so I wanted to start it off kind of just presenting that there's going to be opportunities to have rageful catharsis with the album. From what I understand, the tracks on Sasami were really your first attempts at songwriting. I know it hasn't even been three years since that album dropped, but since March 2019 feels like a lifetime ago, do you look back on those songs fondly? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have this sentiment that I'm almost like a a sci-fi or fantasy novelist and and, um, Squeeze is like my first real intentional work, whereas my first album is kind of like a diary entry that got leaked in advance. And it's very like honest and real. And I wasn't trying to invent anything, whereas this album is much more experimental. And, you know, there's a part of me that like every artist that feels like a little bit kind of embarrassed about my early, early stuff, but I'm still proud of it for what it is. Yeah. And I, and I, I think I'm just endeared to the experiences that other people have had with the album because once you let it go into the ether it's kind of not even yours anymore i'm curious like about the experience of putting like your like were they truly the first songs you'd ever written putting them out into the world yeah morning comes which is on um the self-titled is the first song i ever wrote i i had obviously composed instrumental tracks before but i kind of have always been of this thought that songwriting and well music in general is kind of like a language and I wanted to be more fluent in it before I started writing my own pieces so I feel like it took me a long time to feel like I was aptly fluent enough in songwriting. What did you do to get fluent in songwriting before you actually started writing songs? I think it's really similar to language like you you start by listening a lot like I listen to so much music and then you go into just kind of improvising or babbling and so I would kind of just try experimenting writing little things and then you learn how to read and so I would kind of like transcribe other people's songs and try to kind of understand like what are like the guts of a narrative of a song and then once you kind of have all those elements then you can start writing. I I played in a lot of other people's bands I played a lot of different instruments and different studio roles and other people's projects so I feel like I kind of was the organ in so many other bodies and then felt ready to put my own body of work together. You don't hear people talking about transcribing that much in in pop music or rock music. I feel like that's usually uh, more of like a jazz thing. So that's interesting. I do think that there is this kind of pretentious, like 
gatekeepiness and some elements of like the rock and indie world. Not not that tweeness is like looked down upon, but I, I do think that it's really easy for people to be like, well, this just sounds exactly like this. But I think that most people need to go through a period where they learn how to transcribe and how to parrot and echo other people's work before they like just to get like the muscles acclimated to playing guitar or writing songs or singing. I don't think there's anything shameful about transcribing. And usually I feel like you learn really interesting chord shapes that you would maybe never think up of on your own. Or the most likely thing, which is that you fuck up, you can't actually play it, but then you write something cool, you know? So I think it's a very valid exercise. So most press surrounding this album has made it sound like you were completely uninterested in metal j until just a couple years ago, but I can hear some traces of heavier music on your first record. There's like a really screechy guitar in the background of Callus, uh, not to mention all the power chords, and I'm free, a collab with Devendra Banhart of all people. Um, there's almost like a half a minute of feedback before the song starts. So I guess my question is, um, have you been a secret hardcore head for longer than you've previously admitted? I definitely listened to like emo, hardcore and new metal when I was in middle school and high school. Like I, I'm a normal person. <laughs> like I was alive in the aughts when System of a Down was legit on top 40 radio. So like I don't think anyone escaped that. Um, no, I think that I definitely was tapping into a kind of nostalgic teen angst on this album. Like I feel like in a lot of ways that period of time that to me is attached to new metal and like emo and hardcore that is like maybe the most emotional time of my life you know when you're a teenager you don't haven't had a lot of experiences so everything is world ending so I, I don't know I think that genre and in in terms of you know we were talking about dynamics and the range of classical music or something like that I feel like System of a Down totally has that like when you listen to classical music in the car and you have to like ride the volume knob because it'll be so quiet and then so loud a lot of new metal has that kind of theatrical range. And I think that's another reason why I was really drawn to it. It's very chaotic in a way that I like. Let's talk about System of a Down a little bit. You've said that you're a System of a Down fan, um, but you've also flagged some of their less savory lyrics. Like in a recent interview, uh, you referenced the line on Sugar where uh, Serge Tankian essentially brags about kicking his girlfriend. How do you reconcile loving that music and... Uh, that also has some really problematic elements because it's something that everyone has to do at some point if they're like, you know, honest about listening to the art they like. Yeah, I think that there needs to be a space for artists to be able to live in fantasy world. And I think that, you know, if you watch a horror film, the director of the horror film doesn't get arrested for murder. You know, it's like there, there needs to be a world for humans to live out certain fantasy experiences in a way that is not actually harmful. And I, and I think that a lot of times metal is that world for a lot of metalheads. Um, there is a lot of like fantasy and kind of darkness that is being consumed by people who probably are not that violent in real life. And so I think that is that's part of what attracts me to the genre, um, to be honest, is how gnarly it is. I wanted to appropriate that gnarly gnarliness for my own experience. I'm not going to be like, oh, Serge Tankian says this violent thing in his song. So he definitely also did that. That's a dangerous kind of path to go down where you start like censoring artists or like holding them to all of the lyrics. And my gripe was I wanted to cover the song. I didn't feel comfortable singing the lyric, <laughs> but I'm not like, you know, going to cancel Serge Tankian for writing us a, a lyric. 
that is violent because violence is a huge fucking part of human nature and just nature in general. So it's not something that needs to be deleted from art. You released like a really understated acoustic cover of Toxicity more than a year and a half ago. Um, Can you talk about the process of turning such a loud, angry track into almost a lullaby? Yeah, I think the thing that is so weird and cool about System of a Down is like fundamentally Serge Tankian is like a Armenian folk singer. (laughs) And so like there is actually a melodicism to their music that maybe a lot of other metal bands don't have. And that's kind of the thing I feel like that defines new metal is that it's way poppier and it has a lot of melodic sensibility that like thrash or black metal, it's mostly screaming. So there isn't really actually a melody. So I think that all of their songs are actually just songs with wolves clothing. (laughs) That's what I think is like also so endearing and goofy about System of a Down. Like, it's so heavy. And then he's like, literally like, tra-la-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> I'm into that. I'm I'm the target audience for that. You use like essentially the reverse approach for Squeeze's cover of Daniel Johnston's Sorry Entertainer. So listening back to his original, I can definitely hear that it has some of the bones of a metal track, but I don't know if I'd ever thought of it that way before hearing your take. How'd you decide to cover that song and to make it the lone cover on the album? In my perspective, I really like a cover that is extremely different than the original. And so when I did the System of a Down one, which was already kind of tongue in cheek to take this like heavy song and make it really mellow, I I figured that I should also try the reverse experience. And yeah, I don't know. I think that also it's like a a little bit more of a deep cut of Daniel Johnston. So I feel like sometimes deep cuts can live a second life in someone else's cover. So and also Graham, the guitarist, his solo is so iconic. So I was like, this needs to be on wax. And the video for that one is incredible. Um, What was it like teaming up with Patty Harrison for that one? I mean, Patty is truly the funniest person I've ever met. When I hang out with Patty, like in everyday life, my cheeks like grow six packs just from laughing so hard. She's just like truly, truly without trying the funniest person. And then Alan Resnick, who directed it with her, is like very bizarre and talented and cool. I think that is just like the perfect example of a video that doesn't need to have a high budget, but if weird geniuses work on it. It just kind of all, all clicks together. That's a pinnacle of art for me. It was it was fun. I liked it. That's all I can say. After Skinner Rat, the front half of Squeeze alternates between brighter, poppier tracks and heavier ones. How did you decide on that sequencing rather than say like side A metal, side B pop or vice versa? I think because we, I mean, I'm a millennial and I think growing up in our era of listening, which started with like mixed CDs and then went into like very random LimeWire downloads. And this is just my experience. Like I would get the randomest LimeWire downloads or Napster or whatever. And now we're in like kind of playlist era. I feel like we very much grew up in a extremely disjunct listening environment 
we definitely aren't the like put on a record and listen to the whole record era. Obviously, some people are. And I'm really in, into vinyl now and, and really into listening to full records. But I just think that like our generation has the capacity to kind of jump around a little bit more. And also, I've said this before, but basically my my background in between going to conservatory and touring is being a music teacher. And I feel like the thing that it trains you to be familiar with the most is this like 35, 40 minute format of keeping kids attention and trying to like convey something. And so I kind of feel like I have that energy on the album where I I want to keep the listener's attention and and not go, you know, it's definitely for the most skittish, the most like the shortest attention span kind of person. That's kind of the the person that I'm I'm acknowledging with this album, someone that kind of needs to be taken on a bit of a roller coaster ride for an album. And yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to keep people on their toes. So Say It is a bit of an outlier on the album since it's really more of like an industrial dance track than a metal or new metal cut. talked about playing different musical genres like learning languages um that you need to practice before you play who are you listening to to pick up that industrial language i was listening to godflesh white zombie i mean they're a little bit more like in the in the new metally world i honestly was listening to kanye a lot also because he's another artist like obviously very contentious artist right now but just just in terms of just talking about his art he's so good at creating dynamics and one thing that I really was trying to achieve on this album was this kind of feeling of mashing things together that don't necessarily belong together. Like, you know, in, in System of Down and in a lot of Kanye's stuff, like it feels like there's like two or three different songs and and it just like very abruptly shifts to the next part of it. Like BYOB by System of a Down, the chorus legit sounds like Backstreet Boys. And then all of a sudden it like goes back into this like blast beady moment. I don't know. It's just like pure chaos and and Kanye's music is like that too or it'll just completely shift into a sample that is just in a completely different key I just love that I love that kind of feeling of like abrupt movement so um those were those were big inspirations for me this track is about asking for direct communication in a style that's been home to some of the most like directly aggressive music there is did making it feel like sort of like entering the belly of the beast in any way yeah i mean i have been quoted as saying that this album is like for bottoms to fantasize about being tops i I wanted to basically take all these sonic elements of aggressive music and put them into a place that's maybe more relatable for people who had experiences that are more similar to mine most marginalized people i think 
have life experiences where they're made to feel very small and are just in the underdog position in in whatever uh, dynamic they find themselves in. And honestly, like a lot of Sasami fans from the first album, we got bottom energy. You know, that album is is definitely not something you put on when you're like getting ready for the club. That is like an emotional lubricant album for when you already are sad and want to be more sad. <laughs> and I know that I'm very aware um, because people messaged me all the time saying that they cried to my music. So I definitely didn't want to leave those people behind when I made this album. And by those people, I I, I mean myself, you know, <laughs> like I definitely am, am the kind of person who I'm attracted to this kind of aggressive, more forward kind of Bowser final boss energy. But then when I write lyrics, I'm like, damn, that is not really me. <laughs> so I think it's just like kind of the most authentic way for me to employ this music is to bring that sonic aggression, but with the kind of more lyrical tenderness that is authentic to my songwriting. The chorus to the album's title track is like a series of violent verbs that end with uh, squeezing till you hurt her. Whose point of view is the song written from? And like, do you see generative potential in that sort of like unbridled aggression? So No Home, who's an artist from London, wrote the verses. We collaborated on the song and I had written the choruses. Basically, I wanted to create a feeling with this song more than like a specific narrative. And so the feeling of the song is just like kind of living through the banality of everyday life and then violence kind of enters it, whether you like it or not. And that's kind of the experience of most femme people is that violence kind of just finds you, whether you ask for it or not. And I can't truly speak for CJ's lyrics, but I, I think my interpretation of it is kind of talking more about the generational experience of violence against women and, and trying to be free from all of that. And also just I think those words like fit with the sound of the music a lot. On a lot of the songs, I started with the instrumentals and I started with the feeling that I wanted to elicit. And then I wanted the lyrics to kind of just boost that initial feeling. I know that you've been doing like some research into like generational violence and uh, like your family's history. Can you talk about like some of that research you've been doing? In 2020, like most American people, you know, I was very invested in the racial uprisings and just this kind of need to think about our nation's history and our personal family history. And I kind of went on a deep dive into my family's personal experience on my mother's side being Zainichi Koreans, who are ethnic Koreans who moved to Japan during the Japanese occupation, which was like around 1910, 1915 to 1945. And basically, you know, Japan was occupying Korea at that time. So if you were in Korea, you pretty much couldn't have wealth. You couldn't retain wealth because the Japanese government would seize it. So a lot of Koreans went to Japan for kind of better opportunity. But then when they were there, they were just completely treated like second class citizens and it was kind of nightmarish. And my, so my grandma and my mom were both born in Japan. And a lot of Zainichi people were stateless, so they didn't have citizenship in either country. So it's just a very kind of specific diaspora. And I grew up, you know, with this very this understanding that my mom had a persecuted childhood, but I didn't really deeply understand it. And I just think there's something interesting about all of our family histories. It's like even stranger than fiction or something. And sometimes it takes being an adult to like truly understand how you're personal family experience fits into like the larger scheme of 
colonization and democracy and all of that. So I, I definitely went went deeper into that world. And I have a lot of relatives in Japan and Korea. So I, I took a, a Japanese language course over the pandemic and was watching a lot of like Japanese TV and anime and horror and to kind of reinforce that. And that was definitely a big influence on the sound and also the visuals of the album. So yeah, I mean, I guess let's let's talk about the cover art, which I know like sort of makes reference to both like your your Japanese and Korean heritage upbringing. Can you, can you tell me about the character that's on the front? Yeah, because I was creating this body of work that um, was tapping into fantasy much more than autobiography, and of course, I'm I'm still touching on my own personal experience. So it's not it's not that I don't feel myself in the album, but it was more kind of creating these vignettes for other people to tap into. And so it really feels more like a fantasy album. And it is a fantasy album because there's so many parts of the songs that I'm encouraging people to kind of spiral into deeper into these kind of frowned upon emotional experiences like rage or anger or violence kind of things that especially for femme people are kind of discouraged you know you're just kind of considered bossy or hysterical or aggressive as opposed to just like <laughs> processing your fucking emotions so i i think because i was encouraging this kind of cathartic negative fantasy experience i, I didn't want the album cover to be such a literal photo of me um i wanted it to be this avatar and i was really lucky to become friends with andrew thomas wang during lockdown who is also like an asian queer kid from the south bay in california so we really bonded over the ocean and like our respective east asian like folklore he makes a lot of art that has to do with Chinese gods and deities. And he's very, very tapped into the fantasy world. Like he has worked with Bjork and a lot of stuff that is just completely intergalactically beyond, <laughs> like so next level. And obviously he he directed the cellophane video for FK Twigs, which is also just completely like celestial and fantastical and amazing. So I, I obviously was just kind of really stoked to be able to collaborate with him. And he really helped me because I was still finishing the the music of the album when we started working together. And so he kind of just helped me synthesize exactly what this feeling of kind of duplicity that I wanted to create around the album, this kind of feeling of beauty and aggression existing at the same time. We kind of zeroed in on this Japanese folk ghost character, Nodeon Na, who is this you know, woman's head with a snake body and she dwells in the water. Like, I'm a cancer son. I'm a water bitch. Like, I'm like, okay, this this lady I get. And um, he kind of put some cancerian crab arms on there, which is marry my energy. But yeah, I, I just love this kind of duplicity of her being this water-dwelling, beautiful creature that's just kind of washing her hair in the water. And if, if she's in the water, she just kind of looks like a beautiful woman. But if the wrong person comes across her, she'll hand them this bundle that looks like a baby. And if they're of poor moral standing and try to discard the bundle, it turns into a rock that weighs them down. She sucks their blood, you know, that kind of that kind of story. And I was like, yes, like this bitch is definitely my queen. I love her. Um, also, I think there's this element of like wanting to find this kind of archetypal character that I see myself in, like literally, I like look more like her than like Barbie or something. So I think it's natural that I 
found inspiration in this kind of East Asian folklore. Just kind of ties everything together. And then I decided to have my mom do the calligraphy on on of the font of the album title, which is Sukuizu in Korean. And then on the back, it's in Japanese also. But it's kind of this reclamatory taking this Japanese character and putting Korean text on it is just kind of a, a subtle reclamatory move for my mom. So, yeah. I recently I learned a little bit about the Unification Church uh, because I was up in the Hudson Valley and I uh, I was walking on that they have a trail right by Bard University that like is a lot of it's like a tribute to Reverend Moon. Can you talk about like what it was like growing up in that church and like how it, how it connected you a bit to your to your ancestors? I had such a mixed cultural upbringing because I grew up in El Segundo, California, which is like a very Caucasian neighborhood in Los Angeles. And obviously my mom being Zainichi, I grew up with this kind of mixed Korean and Japanese culture at home. But then growing up in the Unification Church, it's kind of this like Korean supremacist environment, you know, because the the leader is Korean. We like say a lot of prayers in Korean. We sing a lot of songs in Korean. We have like a pledge that's in Korean. There are a lot of kind of Korean ceremonies that take place, like fruit offerings, and it's imbued with this kind of respect for your elders and kind of more traditional Korean principles. So yeah, I, I like was kind of tossed in between these environments where I was growing up in a very Caucasian neighborhood and really wanting to assimilate. I wanted my Lunchables. I wanted my whatever, like what is that limited to? I like wanted so badly to fit in with Lauren and Rachel. But then I'm like in this church that's like very Korean and like much more like white people are like the second the second class. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny growing up in, in both of those environments. But because of that, you know, I was like really surrounded by a lot of Korean people, a lot of Korean food, a lot of Korean music, a lot of just like East Asian principles of behavior. I very much grew up in, in both of those environments. And I think that it shows, you know, my Caucasian Steely Dan Fleetwood Mac dad rock energy and my mom's forcing me to take piano lessons energy is very not hiding in me. Going back to the album, we haven't talked too much about the non-metal side, which includes like some really like triumphant pop songs. I see The Greatest Love of All and Not a Love Song as like sort of sonic siblings. And they both feel like sort of classic ballads and they almost bookend the album. Were you hoping to give Squeeze, which moves in so many directions, like some semblance of an arc with those two tracks? Yeah, I definitely was inspired by power ballads. Like I was truly obsessed with, and you can ask anyone, when I'm obsessed with a song, I just kind of listen to the song over and over again, like truly like a hundred times. And I was really obsessed with Total Eclipse of the Heart for a minute and was just like looping that shit and just totally soaking it in. And I just, like I said, I think after being locked down for so long, I, I wanted to make a body of art that is like extremely not subtle and that's much more reaching out. And so to me, like power ballads is kind of going really deep in one direction of angst and drama and theater. And I just love that kind of drippy, shameless emotionalness. But I just thought that I mean, there are definitely different types of power ballads. A lot of them are about love. But because this album is like so anti-toxic positivity, I was like, this has to be like an unlove, an unlove song or the greatest, at least, is kind of a song about like 
how the absence of love is like almost a greater energy than having it because it's so imbued in fantasy. It truly is greater than reality. Like I think everyone has had that feeling where when someone doesn't reciprocate, you're just like, this is the biggest loss of my life because you, you've only envisioned the best version of what it could be. And now you're devoid of that. And then Not A Love Song is actually kind of after after the bulk of the album being about these very human concepts, these like very human nature concepts of desire and communication and like systemic oppression and um, unrequited love. I, I wanted to kind of zoom out into a more existential place of thinking about humans' relationship with nature. It, it kind of echoes the the sentiment of my first album too, which ends in a much more contemplative kind of way. And Squeeze also ends with Not A Love Song, which is kind of talking about how humans are always centering ourselves in nature. And, you know, I'm guilty of this too, but like everything is photographed. I mean, I'm so Asian. I like photograph every meal I ever eat. So I'm such a hypocrite. But the song is kind of just about how like not every every sound that we hear in nature is like a love song not every image that we see that takes our breath away is like a photograph and that's like its greatest purpose is for us to capture it and hopefully it just kind of starts a deeper way of thinking about our existence not being so human-centric you've successfully reinvented yourself as a musician multiple times at this point like even before you really started your solo career do you think that reinvention is essential to artistry and uh can we expect a new sasami to emerge with each new project i think that nothing is essential to artistry i think that everyone has a completely different purpose for creating art everyone has a different trajectory some people like know nothing about art except for the exact specific way that they make it like they know nothing about theory they know nothing about anything except for just they were born and that came out of them and in some ways I like really admire and respect that type of artistry but that's just not me like I'm just a studious ass Korean girl who like I just go deep in everything that I want to consume and understand and so I think it's just kind of inherent for me that my shit changes a lot because I just get interested in different things and go really deep into them. So yeah, I don't know. Everyone creates for a different reason, but I definitely respect when an artist decides to take a big left turn and take a risk. Like even if I'm not super just inherently into what they're making, I still respect the the journey because I, th I think it's really important for some people to do that. That was Sasami Ashworth talking to The Fader's Raphael Helfand. Sasami's new album, Squeeze, is out tomorrow, February 25, via Domino. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a rating and a review. 
And don't forget to keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.